And this morning, uh, to get things started, before you hear any more from me, uh, I thought it would be good, again, to have someone share about how they are involved in making disciples. You know, every one of us is called to be a disciple and at the same time also to look for opportunity to make disciples of others. And that's the hard part, right? It's one thing. It's hard enough to be a disciple and follow in the footsteps of, of Jesus. We're going to talk some more about that this morning. But it's a, it's a whole other deal when, when you sign up to be a disciple maker. And I want to just invite uh, my good friend and nephew, Zachary Trumbull, to come on up here. And he's going to share a little bit about a ministry that he's recently begun. And uh, we are blessing him and supporting him as a local missionary uh, here in Lansing because of the work that he's doing with junior high and senior high students. And I'm anxious for him to tell you more about that. Thanks. Um, yeah, so uh, the ministry is based uh, on school campuses. Um, it's first priority is the name of the organization. It's kind of like a Young Life or a Youth for Christ type of thing. Um, and what I'm seeking to do is, oh, up closer, sorry, okay. What, I'm, uh, what we're seeking to do is to help students start a Christian club on their school campus. So like you have a ski club and you have a black student union and so you have a Christian student union. And uh, it's totally legal. <laughs> a lot of people don't think you can even do that, but you can. Uh, and so there's one at East Lansing High School, and uh, pretty soon here in the next couple of weeks, we're starting one at uh, McDonald Middle School in East Lansing. And this week, I'm meeting with some really great youth pastors who I've met out in Williamston. There's a group of students at Williamston High School. They have a small kind of Bible study going, and we're going to try to start building in some resources for them and training and supporting them. So um, it's really about training and equipping the students to live out a missional Christian life on their school campus. So uh, the great thing that I love about it is that it's student-led, it's student-initiated. Um, it, you know, me as an outside guy, I can't show up at the school and be like, hey, I'm the Jesus guy, I'm here to talk to kids. They'd be like, no, you're not. But if the students want to pray, if they want to have prayer at the poll, if they want to pray for their friends at lunchtime, if they want to write a paper about how their faith influences whatever they're talking about in English class, if they want to talk to their friends about Jesus when they're walking up and down the halls, nobody can stop them from doing that. And so it's really about leveraging those students' uh, rights and abilities to do that and training and equipping them in discipleship to live out that evangelistic calling at school. So. It's been fun so far. I've been doing it for uh, about a month. We started about a month ago at East Lansing High School, and that's what's going on. Yeah, yeah. In this new ministry, I want you to bless him. If you would just reach your hands out with me. Lord, thank you for Zachary's boldness to step out and begin a new ministry, uh, not just at East Lansing High School, but other schools as well, and perhaps some that we're not even aware of yet. Lord, we want to thank you for the opportunity that you've given him, the open doors, the encouragement of parents and students who are ready for a ministry like this. We thank you, Lord, for the vision that you've laid on Zachary's heart to do this and that we can be a part of supporting him and blessing him and resourcing him. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you're doing in and through Zachary. And, and we, we commit this ministry to you, Lord. We pray that you would use it in mighty ways to, to bring forth fruit in students' lives, Lord, that, that young people would find 
Jesus find out who he is and what, he, what he's done for them and come into relationship with him and then be discipled and raised up as leaders among their peers. We thank you, God, for the, the process of disciple-making that Zachary is engaged in. And we bless him as he continues to press forward in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I mention one more too? So aside from what I'm doing too, if you want to hear some cool stories about how a group like this functions on a high school campus, some guys who have a lot more experience with it than me are the Gill Boys because they've got a group at St. John's High School that, what, like second year or three years? How long is it? Two years, yeah. And they've been a part of it, and it's, like, really cool. they got lots of great stories. So I just want to do what they're doing, really. So, yeah, talk to them because they got cool stuff going on over there. So with that, let's uh, turn our attention to Matthew 16, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples about discipleship. And I want to just pick up the reading again at verse 21. We'll read verses 21 through 28, sort of the end of the story here, where Jesus talks about the nature of discipleship. From that time on, Matthew writes, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. We've looked at it for a few weeks now, and honestly, I think of it as uh, like a mine. I mean, we could continue to dig and go deeper than time allows for. We probably could study this text just for the next several weeks and find more there that we have yet to talk about or uncover before. But this morning, with the last Sunday that we have left of this four-week series on discipleship for the month of February, I want to press in specifically on verse 24. Verse 24, it's really the heart of what Jesus is saying to his disciples about what discipleship involves. Take a look with me again at this particular verse. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, 
whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, I don't know if you're uh, catching Jesus' drift here, but there's a challenge in those words. There's a challenge for each and every one of us. Because Jesus' words clearly indicate that, that whatever the blessings and benefits may be for his followers, and certainly there are many, there's also a sacrifice involved in following him. To truly follow in Jesus' steps, there's a price to be paid. If I can put it that way. Discipleship in the way of Christ is not, not all cake and ice cream. It's a bit of spinach, too. So let's take a good hard look here at what Jesus expects of those who want to follow him. Is that you? Are you signed up? Are you committed? Do you want to be a follower of Jesus? Then let's think about these words that Jesus gave his disciples about what following him really involves. And here's where we start. There are two things here that that Jesus focuses on that have to do with following him. Denying yourself and carrying your cross. Those are the two things I want to look at with you over the next few moments. So let's start with self-denial. To be a disciple of Jesus, according to Jesus' own words, requires learning to consistently act with self-denial. Anybody just love self-denial. This sounds so inviting, doesn't it? I mean, imagine trying to stand up here and talk about uh, calling people to do something that most of us really aren't very eager to do. The, The following Jesus part sounds good, but the minute you begin to talk about what that looks like and what that means from Jesus' perspective, the challenge is on. Self denial is right at the heart of what Jesus says following him is all about. And that doesn't sound very appealing to most people. To be quite honest, this is precisely why the the Christian faith uh, often, I think, has a credibility problem with many people. The sad reality is that many so-called Christians are, are happy to receive forgiveness for their sins, happy to receive the promise of eternal life with God, but not so happy to practice living in self-denial. And, you know, for example, I I heard just earlier this week, uh, as I shared a meal with someone, um, I heard the story of their their spouse who is deeply skeptical of Christianity because that person's mother lived a double life. When it came to Sunday morning, she was insistent that everyone in the family attend church and maintain their good appearances. But throughout the rest of the week, her behavior was anything but Christ-like, anything but selfless. It was controlling, it was demeaning, it was downright angry and mean. And that was toward her own family members. Is it any wonder that her children are skeptical about Christianity? You see, friends, God isn't calling us to walk behind Jesus as his followers in perfection. 
I'm not advocating that we strive for perfection. But he is calling us into a lifestyle of increasing Christ-likeness. Can I get an amen for that? Are you with me? And this is a must, not a may or a might. Right? Notice the language that Jesus uses. Jesus doesn't say in Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple, well, they might think about denying themselves. They might consider the possibility of denying themselves. No, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus communicated this as an active imperative. This is something we must be doing. He said, if anyone's willing to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. So these these are not electives that we get to choose if they sound appealing to us under the right circumstances or options to be considered. No, Jesus says, this is what following me really amounts to. This is what it's all about. This is how to do it. Jesus says, and this is not Simon, mind you, Jesus says, if you want to stay behind me, you have to do what I do. And this is what I do. I consistently deny any and every form of selfish desire for the sake of serving God and others. Isn't that the life of Jesus in a nutshell? So the key then to achieving Christ-likeness, if that's the goal, is learning to act more and more consistently in self-denial with the help of the Spirit of Christ within us. By the way, what I mean when I say this is that self-denial is behind and beneath every form of spiritual discipline and every expression of obedience to the Lord. Anything that you do for God or with God requires a measure of self-denial. So if you want to pray more, you have to deny yourself the desire to spend that time doing something that you might think would be more pleasurable. Or if you want to read your Bible more consistently, again, you have to deny yourself the pleasure of watching TV or sleeping a little longer instead. Self-denial is behind every act of spiritual discipline, every act of obedience to the Lord. Every act of obedience to God and every spiritual discipline relies upon self-denial. But there's something else here in this phrase that I want you to understand because it's not self-evident as you read these words. There's something fascinating about the particular word that Jesus used in Greek that I want to share with you. Are you can I teach you a new word this morning? I won't expect you to use it in everyday speech. Uh, it's one of those hard-to-pronounce Greek words that I throw at you every now and then. Here's the word that Jesus actually used in Greek. It's the word aparnesasto. Yes, thank you. Aparnesasto. It's a mouthful. Aparnesasto. But let me tell you what that literally means. Here's what it means. It means let him renounce. 
So what gets translated, deny yourself, uh, the self is another word, the next word after, literally deny gets, uh, gets translated deny, but in the Greek it literally means let him renounce. In other words, what Jesus is saying here comes to this. If you want to be my follower and stay behind me, you must renounce yourself. You must renounce yourself. Do you know what it means to renounce something? Bear this in mind. To renounce something is to say out loud that you will no longer accept its negative influence upon your life. You see, I think Jesus knew Proverbs 28.13. Anybody here know that one? Proverbs 28.13. And Jesus understood the importance of it, even though he himself was without sin. I think his statement refers right back to this proverb. Here's what it says. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So if you're feeling courageous and adventuresome as a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to repeat after me. Are you ready for this? I renounce my selfishness before God today. I renounce self-reliance. I renounce self-centeredness. I renounce self-indulgence. I renounce self-righteousness. I renounce self-justification. I renounce self-pity. And I even renounce self-loathing. I choose to submit whatever parts of my life are self-focused and driven by my own selfish desires to the life and spirit of Christ within me. See, here's what Jesus is saying to us. If you really want to master Jesus' style of selfless living, you have to be purposeful about renouncing every part of your life that is driven by self, yourself. And these renunciations are not just sort of a one-off kind of a thing. I would suggest to you that this is a This is a routine practice that we need to revisit from time to time. Because we all know that the mindset of selfishness doesn't die easily, does it? Anybody deal with selfish desires and ambitions? Anybody struggle with selfishness from now now, time to time to time? It's I think of it like this a little bit like trying to nail jello to the wall. You've all heard that analogy, right? You might get one nail in, and about the time you go to grab the second nail, the jello starts to slide away. That's how difficult it is to kill selfishness within us. And yet, as hard as it might be to do that, 
to truly learn to deny yourself for the sake of serving God and others. Do you know why Jesus asked this of his disciples? Expected this of his disciples? Essentially, it's because he recognized, as I've mentioned already, that all sinful behavior amounts to selfishness in action. All sinful behavior amounts to selfishness in action. I like to say it this way. Sin is spelled S-I-N, right? Maybe you've heard me say this before. I think you have to be very particular about how you write it out, how you think of it. It's a little S and a little N with a big fat capital I right in the center between them. To me, that's a beautiful reminder (laughs) of the reality that the self is right in the center of virtually every decision and action that's sinful in our lives. And Jesus knew this about sin, which is precisely why he challenges his followers to engage in self-denial. He wants to help us eradicate and exterminate self-centered thoughts and feelings and actions from our lives so that his spirit can give us his life instead. I'm reminded of another reference uh, on this subject The Apostle Paul put it just a little bit differently, but it's directly related to what Jesus is describing in Matthew 16. In Romans 8, 12 to 14, Paul wrote, Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. This is a must, not a may. This is an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. To live by the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit is to put to death the life and leadership of the self. So this is about removing yourself from the throne of your life so that Jesus can sit and reign there instead. Now, before we move any further, let me give you one example, and a personal example at that, because this is one of the things that the Lord has been teaching me lately and challenging me on, working in me to refine my own character and maturity in Christ. I want to share with you a little different aspect of self-denial, because typically I think when we... When we talk and think about self-denial, we recognize, oh, well, I want to do something that I'm not supposed to do, and I have to deny myself the pleasure of doing what I want to do in order to serve God and obey God. And that's all true about self-denial. That's a part of it. But there's another way in which self-denial becomes significant in our lives. There's a different aspect of the self where I've personally found this challenge to be uniquely difficult. Does anybody here struggle with being defensive when you feel hurt or betrayed by another person? Of course we do, right? 
this is natural. It's, it's the, it's the self-defense of the human ego that rises up whenever we feel threatened, whenever we, we feel accused, or whenever, we, whenever, whenever somebody comes against us. So what happens in those circumstances is that your thoughts and your feelings, if they're anything like mine, uh, whenever I perceive that someone has wronged me, my natural tendency in the flesh is to protect and defend myself. It's like a wall, an emotional wall that I put up to protect and defend myself. And, and, and it may manifest in, in some situations as, an, as a defensive outburst, an angry outburst, or on the opposite end of the spectrum, sometimes it manifests as um, avoidance, right? The, the good old-fashioned silent treatment. Come on now. Anybody else struggle with this? Let's be real. So when, we, when we're hurt by something, this is the natural self-defense mechanism that we're tempted to engage in. Either we, we, we burst out in anger to defend ourselves, or we withdraw to protect ourselves and defend ourselves. And in either case, in situations like this, when we feel hurt by someone else's words or actions, it's, it's easy for us to justify our defensive behavior because we can blame the other person for what they've done, right? This is a sense in which uh, our self-defense mechanisms operate to protect us, to protect our ego, and they kick into high gear not when we sin, but when someone else sins against us. When somebody else does something that threatens us or wrongs us or hurts us or disappoints us or betrays us, we justify our self-defense mechanisms because we can blame the other person for causing the situation. But what does Jesus say we should do in situations like that? In circumstances when you've been wronged or hurt by another person, what does Jesus tell you that you should do if you want to follow him? He says, don't justify your self-centered defensiveness or your anger in response to what someone else does to you. Instead, deny yourself and renounce yourself by choosing to forgive those who sin against you, just as he did. So in one sense, self-denial involves confession of your own sin, renunciation of your own selfish desires, but in another sense, I want you to see that self-denial also includes forgiving others for how they've sinned against you. Because in so doing, you are renouncing and denying the natural tendency to defend yourself. Now, with a few moments we have left, let's turn our attention to the second half of the equation. There's really an equation here. Jesus is essentially saying denying yourself plus carrying your cross equals following me. Denying yourself plus carrying your cross equals following me. And of course, we know that this is true because Jesus exemplified it for us. It's the essence of what his life was all about. And so if we want to grow in Christ-likeness, we have to take this equation seriously. 
Which brings us then to the second part of the equation. To be a disciple of Jesus also requires consistently carrying your own cross. What does that mean? What's Jesus talking about? What exactly does it mean to carry your own cross as a follower of Christ Jesus? Well, let's start to answer that question by clarifying what this doesn't mean. It certainly doesn't mean that every follower of Jesus should expect to be crucified on a cross like he was. That's not going to happen to every single one of us. In fact, it's not going to happen to most of us. Nor does Jesus mean that you should make a cross, I mean like a big one, and just carry it around with you everywhere you go. Right? He's not saying you know, that you should have a cross and take it wherever you go, take it to your workplace, take it in your car, take it to the grocery store. In fact, he's not even suggesting really that you should just wear a cross or have one in your pocket and have it on your possession at all times. That's not what Jesus is saying. Not that that's a bad thing to do, but that's not how Jesus intends for us to carry our cross. You see, my understanding here is that that Jesus is actually using this phrase not literally, but figuratively, symbolically. He's using it to represent to us that following him will at times require of us not only self-denial, but also sacrifice and suffering and perhaps even death. So in this case, the cross is representative of whatever it may be in your life that you have to bear that might bring you some sacrificial suffering. That's what the cross was for Jesus, right? It was the instrument of his suffering and death. It was the instrument upon which he embraced and became a sacrificial servant to all men and women. So what is it for you that produces a similar outcome? You see, your cross to bear is not necessarily a cross in literal terms. It's a figurative cross. It's whatever brings you to a place of sacrificial servanthood in relation to God and to other people. In this sense, consider that the cross Jesus bore for us was was the epitome of his sacrificial lifestyle. It was the centerpiece of his service to God and to humankind. And it was the final act in his life of self-denial. You remember what he prayed, right? On the night that he was betrayed, before he went to the cross, as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating blood, doesn't want to be crucified, isn't looking forward to the experience. And yet, he prays, not my will be done, but thy will be done. So that prayer represents both the self-denial of Jesus and carrying the cross of suffering and sacrifice on our behalf. We might 
say literally that these two things go together. Self-denial and carrying the cross are like flip sides of the same coin. And Jesus' example of self-denial was, of course, supremely exemplified in his death on the cross. So the challenge then for us is, is recognizing what the cross really is in our lives. What is your cross to bear? Maybe it's persecution in the workplace. Maybe you have a boss that isn't a Christian and is asking you to compromise your integrity and and do something that you know you shouldn't do. Or maybe it's it's dealing with, with family members that are against you because of what you believe in. There are all sorts of ways in which we can embrace suffering and sacrifice all sorts of ways in which we can bear our own cross as we follow Jesus. So recognize what the cross looks like in your own life when it comes your way. And don't turn away from carrying your cross. Accept it. Embrace it. Embrace whatever instrument or circumstance helps to bring you into a place of self-denial even if it includes suffering and sacrifice. That's hard, isn't it? This is not easy stuff we're talking about, but this is the essence of how Jesus lived his life and died for us. Now, again, lest you imagine that this is optional, not really required of us, I want you to see a cross-reference that Jesus shared with his disciples earlier on in their training. Back in Matthew 10, Jesus is sending the disciples out two by two to go and talk about the kingdom and to pray for the sick and to represent him to the, uh, the communities which they were to visit. And he gives them a whole list of instructions and advice. And in the context of that, Matthew 10, 38 and 39, he says this, and you'll see the connection immediately with what he says again later in Matthew 16. He says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You see, Jesus is underscoring the importance of cross-bearing with these words. He's highlighting this principle to his disciples He's saying, if you want to be counted worthy of being identified as one of my followers, then you should expect some form of cross that you'll have to bear. You should expect some suffering and sacrifice to come your way. He's basically saying that that suffering is part and parcel of discipleship. These things are simply part of the process of following Jesus. This is what we signed up for like it or not, because we live in a broken world where the kingdom of darkness is still at war with the kingdom of light, and we will experience opposition from other people and even from powers and principalities who stand against us. So then this was was experienced, of course, by the disciples. Jesus' words were validated in their experience. Have you read the book of Acts? Do you know what they went through? Do you know how their lives ended, each and every single one? 
One of my favorite examples of this is Acts 5, verses 40 to 42, that speaks about the apostles' suffering for following Jesus. They're called in before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. They're told to never talk again about the name of Jesus. You're causing too much trouble. Be quiet. Shut up. Don't say anything more. And then they're, uh, as they're ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, finally they're let go after they're flogged, right? Here's what it says, Acts 5, verse 40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Sounds inviting, doesn't it? Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Whoa. Have you thought about that? That's hardcore. They left, after they'd been flogged, they left rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. There's an attitude of rejoicing in suffering that Jesus is inviting us into. And this is hard stuff. This is challenging. Let's be honest, right? But this is what Jesus exemplified for us. This is how Jesus went to the cross. In fact, this story in Acts connects us with, um, with this amazing insight that I find in the account from Hebrews chapter 12. Do you remember these verses? Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know when you want to grow weary and lose heart? When you're suffering, when you're being persecuted, when somebody's coming against you, when life is not easy. This is the spinach part, not the cake and ice cream part. But Jesus went to the cross with joy. Think about that. He went to the cross with joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Can you remember the last time you endured some form of persecution or suffering for being a follower of Jesus? Some of you probably have one that comes to mind right away. Others may have to struggle to remember an experience like that. But if you can remember an experience like that, how did you carry your cross in that moment? Did you carry it with joy? Or was it a burden? Was it, a, was it something that you despised, an experience that you despised? You know, there's some incredible stories from out, throughout church history of great saints who suffered tremendously for the sake of their commitment to following Jesus. And we can be inspired from their example. I don't know what the future holds. Right now we live at, in a time and in a place where we have great freedom and we're not commonly persecuted for our faith like people in other parts of the world maybe. But you know, the Bible speaks a lot about the end times 
and that, that the, the influence of darkness and persecution are going to grow and that the church is going to be pressed by those who stand in opposition to what we believe and what we practice. Here's an example for you of carrying the cross from the life of Ignatius of Antioch, one of the great early church fathers who lived and died in the first century. He was born in about 35 AD, just a few years after Jesus uh, went to the cross, grew up, became a follower of Jesus, and eventually became leader of the church, bishop of the church in Antioch, which was one of the leading centers for Christian life in the first century. And near the end of his life, as he was being persecuted by the Romans, he was put in prison and he was being threatened with execution. And here's what he wrote in his letter to the Romans just before they threw him to the lions. He wrote, may I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. I pray that they would be found eager to rush at me. And I will also entice them to devour me speedily and not deal with me as some whom out of fear they have not touched. If they are unwilling to assail me, I will compel them to do so. Pardon me, I know what is to my benefit. Now I begin to be a disciple. Let no one of things visible or invisible prevent me from attaining to Jesus Christ. Let fire and the cross, let wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocation of bones, let cutting off of limbs, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all the evil torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. There's an, an example of carrying the cross. Jesus is inviting us, friends, to walk in his footsteps and to become more like him. And there are lots of great things, appealing things about that journey. But there are some things that are hard, but they're true. And I just, as I close this morning, I'll close with these words from James chapter 1. Because this is what carrying the cross with the right attitude, with the Jesus attitude, is all about. Consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything.